I appreciate this congregation's willingness to sing of God's goodness in so many different ways. We opened with a song. I was sitting there watching how many dusts and requirists and all these old English spellings that were there. And now we have sung two songs that come from the last couple of decades. I really do think we need to recognize that God's truth transcends the ages and transcends the time of his church, and we need to sing truth wherever it is beautifully and faithfully proclaimed. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 26, Genesis chapter 26. This morning, we return to the book of Genesis. We've been away from it for eight weeks now, and I'm glad we're back. I love Genesis. It describes how God works in and through flawed people. In other words, it demonstrates how God might work in and through me. In Genesis, I see a God who counts as righteous a badly flawed Abraham. A God who comforts the runaway pregnant slave girl, Hagar. Jacob is sneaky and and underhanded, and I don't know what the word is, the word slimy almost comes to mind. God saves him. Sarah tells her husband to do something and then gets mad at him for doing it. She's a hypocrite. God saves her. God saves Lot, though he is a sniveling, self-centered man. All of this is hope for me, and I hope it is for you. If, in fact, God saves such people, he can save me. It's interesting, in fact, that Abraham is told specifically that one of the reasons he was saved was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth. In other words, Abraham was saved in part to be a blessing to the Shaws in America in the 21st century. If you go to Genesis to find what was true in the past, I hope you find what is true today and forever. Our God saves people who do not deserve salvation. So in your Bibles, looking at Genesis 26, it's page 23 of that Red Pew Bible, we're going to read, and this is a long section, a very long section. And as is, my, as is my practice with many of these longer readings, I will make comments along the way in hopes of helping us understand what's happening. But before I'll make this comment, here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. It is the very word of God to man. So give heed now to what God has to say. 26 verse 1, now. And yes, I'm going to stop already. This word in the original Hebrew is a particle, a vav, is exceedingly common in Hebrew. In fact, it functions not so much like a a word, but like punctuation, which they didn't have in their language. We would use a period to mark the end of a complete thought. They would use the vav, now, to indicate the beginning of a new thought. So that when you read Hebrew, this 
word now, often translated and, is everywhere in Hebrew. Why do I share that? Because I think it's important that we understand its function here is probably not chronological, but is uh, 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 cognitive. It's marking a new thought in our author, but may not be marking a new time. You say, now, Scott, it's the word now. It's got to be time relevant. Well, let me point out to you that while the ESV and the NIV, two excellent translations, have the word now, three really good translations, the King James, the New American Standard, and the New English Translation, do not include the word now. They don't see it as essential, but as ancillary. All that is my way of setting the stage for the fact that this may not mark what happened next. Continuing. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerhar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Isaac's direction and God's comment seem like they don't go together. Isaac's going to Gerhar. Why is God talking about Egypt? Well, Gerhar is in southwest Palestine. It would have been on the road, on the path to Egypt. See, Isaac seems to be headed. Egypt was less prone to famines because of the predictable flood cycles of the Nile. Palestine was dependent upon the rains. And so Isaac appears to be headed to Egypt when God intervenes along the road at Gerhar and says, don't go to Egypt. Stop and stay here. God stops him and says to him, picking up in the second half of verse 2, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring. And while it doesn't come out in English, that word in Hebrew is singular. Singular offspring. I will... uh, uh, I lost my place. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. A couple of quick comments. First, the reason given here is stunning. Because Abraham obeyed? Now, I realize we've been eight weeks away from Genesis, but I hope you've picked up on the fact that Abraham is not exactly uh, uh, Mr. Obedient, or at least not in every regard of his life. He was a sinful and flawed man. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is not ultimately a statement about Abraham's obedience day in and day out. But it is a statement about Abraham living a life of faith. And because he lived a life of faith, he is counted as in Christ. And because he is in Christ, he is perfect, fully aligned with God's comment. A second comment 
less immediately important, but relevant to where we're headed with this. The wording here to Isaac is interesting. For God promises to, uh, makes comments and promises comforting about the offspring. And I will remind you that when a similar comment was made to Abraham, when a similar theophany occurred in Abraham's life, it was while he was waiting for Isaac, but God never once comes to Isaac after, I'm sorry, never, God never once comes to Abraham after Isaac was born and says these things. Comfort is given while the blessing is still in the future. Fast forward to the next generation. God will appear to Jacob and say essentially the same things before Jacob has any children, but never after his sons are born. The pattern is that God's appearance to the patriarchs is at a time when they are awaiting the promised blessings, not after they have them. It is not conclusive, but it is suggestive that we actually have stepped back in time to a point before the twins were born. That chapter 26 may not chronologically follow 25. I've lost my place. Sorry, just a moment here. All right, picking up in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerhar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. First, it's a little bit lost in English, but there is wordplay going on here. Remember, Itzhak, Isaac's name, means laughter. Thus, the laughing boy was laughing, or you could say the, that Isaac was Isaacing. There is some wordplay going on here, and it gives him away. Isaac, being Isaac, betrays Isaac. And while we are not told explicitly what was happening, it was not something you do with your sister. The nature of this laughter is intimate and sexual. It is as if Rebecca has leaned in and whispered in Isaac's ear, Remember the time we slipped away behind your father's tent? Whatever prompted the laughter, its intimacy gives away their relationship. On another note, imagine for a moment that there were two sons in tow. Do you imagine that you could live a long time, as the text noted, in close proximity to your children and nobody noticed they're your children? Nobody noticed that Esau and Jacob looked like Rebecca, talked like Rebecca, stood like Rebecca, had the mannerisms of Rebecca, they liked all the same favorite foods that she liked? How is that possible? Again, my suggestion is this that we are looking at a time before the twins were born, that we have stepped back to a previous uh, 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 events in their Isaac and Rebekah's life. Verse 9, So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? 
Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Just as Isaac's actions duplicate those of his father, so too do his motivations, fear of man rather than fear of God. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Quick side note, Abimelech, that word means my father is king. My father is king and is therefore assumed to be a throne name, just like Pharaoh in Egypt was a throne name. Abimelech here in Palestine and the Philistines appears to have been a throne name, which is my way of saying this is probably not the same man who went through these similar events with Abraham. This is probably a descendant of that Abimelech. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Isaac became rich. Now that is strange wording. If Abraham has already died and left his phenomenal wealth to Isaac, kind of hope you see where I'm going with this, the evidence is beginning to pile up, that we may not be looking at a time that chronologically follows chapter 25. Rather, we are stepping back. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. My translation has that in parentheses because it seems to have been a note that was added later and not particularly relevant at that time. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerhar and settled there. Okay. So Isaac moves from Gerhar to Gerhar. I think we here in Maryland are extremely well prepared to understand this. Isaac has moved from Baltimore to Baltimore County. Confusing when I first moved here. I get it now. He has moved out of Gerhar, the city proper, and into the surrounding countryside. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. To be sure, this verse is a monkey wrench in our proposal that we've stepped back in time. But I suspect that it is an anachronism. Anachronisms are common in historical accounts. We routinely speak of Christopher Columbus discovering the Americas in 1492. But America, Amerigo Vespucci, after whom the Americas were named, didn't publish his work until 1503, 11 years later. Columbus did not discover the Americas because they weren't the Americas then. It's an anachronism. It's taking a modern situation and projecting it back into history. I think that's what's going on there in verse 18, but we can't be sure, and so I'm not about to start a new denomination over the chronology involved here. I think we've stepped back in time. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerhar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. 
So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. In other words, Isaac has finally moved far enough out into the countryside that the Philistines are no longer afraid of him. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Just as God appeared to Abraham several times to reassure him, often in conjunction with times of trial, so now God appears to Isaac this second time following the confrontations with the Philistines. The point is the same. Isaac is cared for. Isaac is being tended to. God is superintending the life and times of the patriarch Isaac. God is ministering to Isaac. God loves Isaac. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, which in Genesis means he worshipped. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerhar with a, a, a who's Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Notice his tone there. They said, We see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, Let a, let the. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing, uh, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. During our Dinners with Jesus sermon series, which we just completed, uh, we saw how the Lord's table could be a, a place to identify with Jesus and a place to receive nourishment from Jesus spiritually. This is not the Lord's table, nor is it even really a precursor of the Lord's table, but it does remind us of another symbolism of meals shared together. And that is that the people who are eating together are at peace with one another, not at war with one another. Surely that is also one of the messages we have at our communion table, that we are, because of Christ, at peace with our God. Verse 31, in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. That doesn't mean they shouted profanities at one another, but rather that they formalized their peace. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. And now you see why I don't think verse 18 is conclusive with regard to chronology, because here we have another anachronism. Beersheba has already been named Beersheba, and now we have an account of it being named Beersheba. Our author's point is not journalism, but storytelling to the glory of God. Let's pray. 
Lord, help us to understand this text that seems so repetitive, that seems so redundant. And yet let us see in it who you are and how you work among us, that we might glorify with precision our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis 26 feels like a scene from that old movie Groundhog Day, wherein everything just keeps happening over and over and over again in this endless loop until the protagonist finally learns his lessons and is free to move on. Abraham faced a famine. Isaac faces a famine. Abraham fled to a foreign land. Isaac flees to a foreign land. In that land, Abraham was afraid he would be killed for his beautiful wife. Isaac was afraid he'd be killed for his beautiful wife. Both lie and call their wives sisters. Both are found out. Both are rebuked by a pagan king who comes across as more righteous than they are. And both of them are granted safety and protection and their wives as well. Both grow rich while they are in that foreign land. Both are then driven out of that land because of the wealth and power they have acquired. Most importantly, along the way, both are visited by God and assured of his covenant promises and plans. Genesis 26 is in many ways Groundhog Day long before Hollywood ever made that movie. So what are we to make of this? What purpose does this serve? Are we meant simply to see Isaac as Abraham 2.0 with some lessons to learn? He learns them and then we move on, like the movie Groundhog Day? There are a lot of sermons about this chapter that do exactly that. And while I think they miss the point, I do appreciate that they take the scriptures seriously. Because liberal scholarship looks at this passage and says, ha-ha, this is conclusive proof that it's all fabricated. Neither Abraham nor Isaac are real people, but rather the author of Genesis took common myths and legends of his day, common themes from the, uh, the stories of the surrounding cultures, and he wove them together to make up these forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. I don't think that does a lot of justice to the human author of Genesis, who all in all is a pretty gifted writer, who writes with some pretty excellent literature. To dismiss him as lacking that kind of creativity, I think, is not fair. But more than that, it does no justice to God, whose word this is, and it is therefore true. So what are we to do with this text. Me? I thought maybe it meant a week off. A week without sermon prep. After all, if it's the same things that we've seen before in the life of Abraham, then I can just re-preach the same sermon from those events in Abraham's life, right? Wrong. This turns out not to be the preacher's equivalent of Groundhog Day. And that's why I've pointed out some of these chronology issues along the way. Now, I didn't come up with this idea. Rather, a respected Bible thinker has proposed this. And I will admit, it is not universally accepted. But I am increasingly convinced that in Genesis 26, we have stepped back to an earlier time in Isaac's 
life. And it's not like Genesis doesn't do this. Genesis 2 is a step back to an earlier time from the end of Genesis 1. Even Genesis 25 opened up telling us about the death of Abraham, but it doesn't even happen until after the close of Genesis 25. And Genesis 25 opened up telling us about his marriage to Keturah, which it turns out was long before the death of Sarah. She's a concubine after all which occurred back in Genesis 23. You see, when you are telling narrative history, you're not telling journalism. Genesis is not a journalistic account of the mere facts that happened. It is a story told with a purpose. Consider how we tell stories. I might come home uh, uh, in the past when, you know, different job situation. I might come home and say to Becky, the boss said uh, blah, blah, blah to the salesman. And he said yada, yada, yada to the receptionist. Now, it's almost certain that those two things did not occur sequentially as I relayed them to Becky. And it's even possible those two things did not occur in the order I relayed them to Becky. But rather, in order to make my point, I share what he said to the receptionist, and then I go back and fill in something he, sorry, what he said to the salesman, and then I go back and also share what he said to the receptionist to help build my case. Narrative history is history with a point. And our author in Genesis is not bound first and foremost by chronology, just as the authors of the Gospels were not. He is rather driven by his desire to communicate the truths of God. So what truth is being communicated here? What's going on? Well, Yahweh may be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Genesis is the book of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Even a casual reader of Genesis will note that Isaac is largely ignored. There are 13 chapters in which Abraham is the predominant human figure, 11 where Jacob is foremost, and 15 that feature Joseph. This is the only one where Isaac figures prominently. Think back even to chapter 25. No sooner is the death of Abraham reported in the opening of 25, then we are immediately moved forward to the birth of Isaac's sons. And immediately Jacob becomes the foremost figure. Even the theophany in 25 did not occur to Isaac. When God foretells the birth of Isaac to to the previous generation, he tells it to Abraham, not to Sarah. When God will appear to Jacob and foretell what's going to happen, he tells it to Jacob, not to Leah or Rachel. But in 25, we have God going to Rebekah, not Isaac. Isaac is a skipped over figure. And that is not an accident. The bulletin insert, and I understand today it actually has been inserted. My apologies for that last week. 
the bulletin insert goes into this in a bit more detail, but let me quickly explain. There is this Hebrew word, we have mentioned it before, it's the word toledot. It is in most translations rendered as the generations of. It marks ten, it occurs ten times in the book of Genesis and marks the beginning of subsections of Genesis. And each time what follows is not an account of the named person, but of the subsequent offspring. So that the generations of Noah tell us about his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The generations of Terah, the Toledot of Terah, tells us about the life of Abraham in detail. The Toledot of Esau will tell us not about Esau, but his descendants, etc., etc., etc. Even, interestingly enough, back in Genesis 2-4, we have, these are the generations of heaven and earth when they were created. And then what do we get? A detailed account of the first son of creation, Adam. This is the pattern. And there's no Toledot of Abraham. Now that cannot be a mistake. That cannot be by accident. Our author did not write 12 chapters about Abraham and then forget. He didn't wake up the next morning after it was published and go, Oh, I didn't include the Toledot of Abraham. Oops. We'll get it in the second edition. This was by design. Why? Why is there no account? Remember, the Toledot of Abraham wouldn't be about Abraham. It would be a detailed account of his offspring, Isaac. And it's not there. Why not? Look back up in your Bibles to Genesis 25, 28. Look up to Genesis 25, 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is a sad commentary on the life of Isaac. For God will say through the, uh, the, the prophet Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But Isaac loved Esau. God said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. Are we to imagine that she never shared that with her husband? There's no chance. But Isaac loved Esau. When Abraham was informed that God favored Isaac over Ishmael, it broke Abraham's heart. But in the end, by faith, Abraham sent Ishmael away and he went all in on Isaac, putting all of his hope and all of his wealth and all of his legacy and all of his future on the one tapped by God. But Isaac loved Esau. And why? Why does Isaac love Esau rather than God's chosen son, Jacob? Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. First John warns against the desires of the eyes, against loving this world. It is a warning that the pleasures of this life must never lead us astray. Oh, how Isaac needed that warning. For the sake of good food, for the sake of a rich meal, for the sake of a contented belly, Isaac loved Esau, though God loved Jacob.
Isaac did not walk in the ways of God. Isaac did not lead his household in covenant faithfulness. Rebecca did. Praise God for faithful women. The Bible is full of them, full of wives and mothers and grandmothers who step up and fill the void left by weak men. Bathsheba plays a stunning role in protecting David's legacy. Ruth, Naomi, Deborah. I've probably forgotten some. Oh, Hannah. Elijah and Elisha are both, their ministries are sustained by women. Jesus' earthly ministry was sustained by women. John Mark's mother was the one who provided a meeting place for the early church in the book of Acts. Think of Timothy's mother and grandmother. Praise God for faithful women. I suspect most of us here could tell of our mothers and how they faithfully led us into the fear and admonition of the Lord. And yet, it is God's design that husbands and fathers be the spiritual head of the household, and Isaac does not lead his home toward God. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Pastor, you're making way too much of this. It is just one verse, one comment made in passing. Look forward to next week's text. Look at Genesis 27, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so they could not see, he called Esau his older son, not Jacob, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I, here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. In the course of Genesis, Isaac doesn't actually die until chapter 35. What's going on? Well, again, like Abraham's death, I think we have the account of Isaac's last days pulled out of time and set in a place that tells the story that needs to be told. You see, we need to understand Genesis 26 in light of the bookends at the close of 25 and the opening of 27. Genesis 26 is not an account of a faithful man who is just Abraham 2.0. Rather, it is an account of a man who loved the one God did not choose and did not love the one whom God did choose. We are told that when the boys were young in 25, and we are told that when Isaac's health is failing in 27. That is the warp and woof of Isaac's life. So how does Genesis 26 fit into all this? It is a parenthesis. It is an insertion into the account of Isaac. Because the author has realized that if he skips Isaac's life altogether, some will blame God. Oh, sure, Isaac's not an exemplar of the faith. 
Sure, Isaac should not be held up like Abraham and Jacob were, but it's God's fault. God appeared to Abraham and to Jacob. God comforted Abraham and Jacob. God's word came to Abraham and Jacob, but it didn't come to Isaac. That's why he loves Esau. He didn't know any better. You see, Genesis 26 is not really about Isaac. It's about God. It's about the God who did love Isaac, who did reach out to him, who did take his word to him who did reassure and comfort and protect and save him. Our author is not concerned with the reputation of Isaac. He is concerned with the reputation of God. And he wants to be sure that we rightly glorify God. So we have stepped back in time. This is a time when his sons are not mentioned because they were not yet born. This is a time when they are still newlyweds, he and Rebecca. They're still flirty. They're still having sex so often they get caught in a public place. Those married long enough to have adult children do not do these things. But it's good to be young. This is a time when he would become rich. He was not yet the benefactor of his father's estate. Unless we think that God did not have, he did not have the blessing of God's word like his father had, our author purposely picks events that exactly mirror Abraham. And in those mirror events are mirror theophanies. Just as God's word came to Abraham in his early Christian walk, just as God's word would later come to Jacob early in his walk of faith, so we have here the defense of God. Isaac's life is not aligned with God's covenant plans, but that's not God's fault. As Isaac flees for his life from the famine, what do we have in verses 2, 3, and 4? And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I will show you. Sojourn in this land. Same language used for Abraham. And I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, singular, who is still yet to come, he doesn't have two at this point, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to, your, to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is the exact covenant made with Abraham almost verbatim. There was no need to fear death in the land and lie about his wife. God promised him a future. More importantly, the offspring, again, which is in English could be singular or plural, it's singular in Hebrew, God is pointing to the one child. But Isaac doesn't listen. And in the midst of the repeated confrontations with the Philistines, God appears to Isaac a second time in 24 and 25. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. I'm the same one who saved your dad. Trust me. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. 
If you're feeling guilty about your lack of faith, you're thinking to yourself, Isaac, you know, if Isaac, if you're thinking to yourself, well, God, you know, can't really possibly love me, then understand, I'm willing to do it for Abraham's sake. And Isaac responds, at least momentarily, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Isaac worshipped, but in the end, he couldn't accept that God had chosen Jacob over Esau. Isaac begins his fatherhood favoring the wrong son, and he concludes his life favoring the wrong son. And lest anyone should blame God, our author stops, and in chapter 26 says, God did send his word to Isaac. God did appear to Isaac. In fact, the circumstances of Isaac's life, spiritually speaking, are practically identical to those of his father, Abraham. Isaac may not have set aside the the son he loved to trust God's promises about the other son, but don't blame God. God was faithful Isaac. God showered his presence on Isaac. God appeared to Isaac. Isaac would not let go of the things of this life in exchange for God's vision of the world to come. You see, Isaac couldn't set aside the tradition of firstborn privilege. Isaac couldn't get past the blessing of a good meal. Isaac was hurt that the Philistines drove him away. He longed for the approval of man. Isaac has failed to understand what God is trying to say. As good as you might perceive this life to be, there is a better one out there. Reach for it. Set your eyes on it. Walk toward it. But Isaac was led astray by the desires of the eyes. At this point in the sermon, there are probably more than a few of you who have looked at the bulletin, have listened to this sermon, and are wondering, okay, how do you get a sermon title like that? Do not judge. How is that a sermon title for this sermon? Well, you see, as I studied this chapter, as I came to grips with this view of Isaac, and I'll be honest, it's brand new to me. I have never seen Isaac in this light. I have never carefully considered what is said about him in 25 and 27 before now. And I was struck by the simple, straightforward relevance to the church today. Two men sit in the same church, hear the same sermons, attend the same Sunday school, Two women sit side by side in the same women's Bible study in the same small group. One grows in faith, matures, deepens his or her spiritual life. One father leads his home in faithfulness. Perhaps he becomes a deacon or an elder in the church. The other eventually walks into scandal. We tend to think sexual scandal at this point, and that could be but let's just leave it open to a broader scandal. You know what I notice over the years in the church? The inability to submit to the authority of the elders in our lives. Pride that we know the best way to go. No matter 
whatever the reason, one of them grows in faith and the other leaves the church. And what do we make of that? I heard a joke once. I don't think it's particularly funny, but it is revealing. Three men are riding a train. One is a Catholic, one an Arminian, the other, the third, a Calvinist. They are standing together in the dining car looking out the window when suddenly they see a man tumbling horribly alongside the train in mortal danger. The Catholic says that poor man was pushed off the train. The Armenian says that sad man jumped off the train. To which the Calvinist replies, that man was never on the train. The problem with the joke is that it assumes that we can judge such things. It assumes that we can evaluate where other people are on the train of life. Jesus said, do not judge. Now, the Bible is full of calls to be judicial. We are to be judicial. We are to make judgment calls about who should be elders in our churches. We are to be judicial about who should be excommunicated. And there is a whole realm of things in between that we are, about which we are to make judgment calls. So what did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge? He said, do not take to yourself that judgment which belongs only and ultimately to God. For what does Jesus say? On that day, many will cry, Lord, Lord, and I will say, away, I never knew you. But the reverse is true as well. You and I are going to be shocked at some of the people standing there on that day. What? He let her into heaven? You see, when we make the judgment call, that that one, that that man, that that woman, they've walked away from the church. They can't really be a believer. They've walked away from our church, and our church upholds the truth, so they must not be truly saved. They were never on the train. Oh, dear Calvinist, resist that temptation. For in the end, we cannot probe the mysteries of the grace of God. And to pretend that we can is to imagine that it's clear that some deserve salvation while others don't. Now, to be sure, James is profoundly clear. Faith without works is dead. Can such faith save? The rhetorical answer is no. And Isaac is saved. Make no mistake about it. In Matthew, Jesus says clearly that Isaac is at the table in the kingdom of heaven. In Hebrews, Isaac is listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Isaac is a saved man. There was some fruit in his life. I'm not sure what it was. It may have been shriveled fruit, dried fruit, and maybe only one or two pieces of fruit. But we have to admit, somehow Abimelech knew that Isaac worshipped a different god. Somewhere along the way, there was some amount of faith in Isaac. So is there a warning here that we should guard our own lives and listen to the word of God and not go down the path of Isaac? Sure. 
but that's not really the one I want to draw out this morning. Rather, I want the rest of us to leave room for God to be gracious, to recognize that the one who seems to have walked away from the church, to the one, to the one who seems to have been caught up in a scandal not befitting the faithful, the one who seems not to be living in accord with the covenant promises of God, it is not our calling to judge them, but to reach out to them. How sad if on that day, Jane Smith shocks you by her presence there, and then she says to you, why did you let me build on Christ's foundation with wood, hay, and stubble? Why didn't you help me build with gold, silver, and precious stones? Are we really going to say I was too busy judging you? God's grace is truly amazing in that it saves even people like Isaac who outwardly seem not to be on board with what God is saying. But somewhere inside him, God was at work. And God saved him. Let us be people who do not merely proclaim the, 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 the sovereign grace of God, but who understand the implications of God's sovereign grace includes the possibility that the Isaacs among us are really among us. Let's pray for those brothers and sisters. Let's reach out to them. Let's long for their restoration. Let's hope that we will see them on that day. To the glory of God, who saves a lot of people who do not deserve to be saved. Lord, the message of Isaac is an amazing testimony to your faithfulness. that you will bring into your heaven all those whom you have chosen to save. Let us be amazed by your grace here and now so that on that day we don't stand shocked and slack-jawed, but rather we are ready to sing of your grace that we are ready to proclaim the truth of the wonder of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.